According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Mark chapter 11. Uh, We are moving on from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was episode number one. Now to episode number two, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. The harmony that we're making use of actually divides the fig tree episode into two sections and uh, numbers them as number two and number four. And we'll discuss that today. Uh, The Gospel of Mark is real good at um, showing us this more detailed breakdown. We'll talk about that. And I thought rather than um, handle them separately, I'll just combine them in the same teaching uh, section and we'll, uh, we'll cover both two and four. Uh, here starting today and then we'll teach number three and then skip on to number five when we when we get that far assuming of course we're still here and trumpet hasn't sounded yet Uh, but the cursing of the fig tree and uh, why does jesus hate trees we'll have to see here mark chapter 11 on the next day when they had left bethany he became hungry seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf He went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. You then have, uh, they go into the city, starting in verse 15, and he drives out the money changers and he cleanses the, the temple there, taking you down through verse 18. We'll talk about that today as well. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, this now makes it Wednesday morning. So Tuesday morning, he curses the fig tree on his way into Jerusalem. And then Wednesday morning, uh, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And then a realm of teaching that Jesus will give them starting in verse 22, taking you down through 25. All right, so that's where we're going to be covering. And Mark gives us, I think, the, the most detailed, the most um, chronologically accurate, the best uh, account to start with. We'll bring in Matthew and, and Luke for comparisons, uh, but we're going to use Mark for our, for our base text as far as this study is concerned. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Give ourselves the opportunity to confess anything that needs to be confessed. Quiet our heart for teaching, shall we pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is for us to assemble together. Father, we we give you praise and glory for all that you've done, all that you continue to do. We uh, look forward to each uh, each class, Father, as we work our way through the, the Passion Week uh, from Monday to Tuesday to Wednesday. Father, uh, leading up to, to Friday when the work was done that was necessary to accomplish our salvation. Father, thank you for this study. It's been a blessing for all these years. It continues to be a blessing. We look to you to, uh, to direct our thinking as we study once again. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Um, hold your finger there. And let's just uh, glance over to Matthew for the moment. Matthew 21. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. And you'll see why we're going to use Mark as the base text. Matthew 21, as we harmonize these, we understand um, 
that there are divergent accounts that are given and uh, based upon the perspective of the author and his purpose in recording these events. And uh, Matthew is very thematic in how he writes. And he's very much concerned with the content of the messages, the subjects of the messages, and so forth. He is not sing, uh, focused on uh, chronology, or he's not at all worked up about uh, synchronizing details. It's not his purpose. He's a Hebrew thinker in many ways. And so as we look at Matthew 21, uh, you might be surprised to see that in verses 12 and following, he cleanses the temple, and then in verses 18 and following, he uh, curses the fig tree. So it's in a reversed order. You have the, uh, in Mark, he curses the fig tree, then he goes and he cleanses the temple. And then it's the following morning that the disciples observe the effects of that curse. They observe the withered tree. Okay? In the Matthew account, he, he speaks about the cleansing of the temple first, and then he speaks about the cursing of the fig tree. And when he does so, he speaks of it as a single event. He does not distinguish between the one day and the next day and how there was time in between and so forth. In fact, the bare reading on this makes it seem that it's, it's rather um, immediate. Okay? And so uh, this is part of what we deal with when we evaluate the different uh, gospel accounts. And we harmonize them together. So uh, in reading in Matthew 21:18, it says, Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked. Now seeing this, we understand from Mark, is the next day. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither uh, at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you. And he has a similar message to what we're going to be detailing over there in mark so again that's part of the divergent accounts and part of the things that we we harmonize as we put these things together remember there is no verse in the bible that is a lie there is no verse in the bible that is inaccurate but we need to harmonize them with what every verse in the bible says about any particular topic and so that's part of why we're handling the life of christ series in uh, in a harmony of all four gospel records all right we begin with point one in our outline on tuesday morning nissan 11 Nissan 11. Remember on Nissan 10, the uh, Nissan is the Hebrew name of this month, the, um, March 30th, if you want to give it Gregorian dates. But um, on Nissan 10, the Passover lamb is selected. The Passover lamb is selected and held until such time as he is sacrificed on Nissan 14. The parallelism with Jesus Christ matches because on Nissan 10, Christ enters into Jerusalem to the songs of, of Hosanna. The Passover lamb is selected. And then on Nisan 14, on Good Friday, uh, he will be slain. Well, that was last week's event with Palm, the triumphal entry on Palm Monday. On Tuesday morning, Nisan 11, Jesus cursed a fig tree. And the uh, scriptures on this are Mark 11, 12 through 14, and Matthew 21, verses 18 and 19, which we just read. The Luke account, by the way, didn't even discuss this. In the Luke account, they discuss the, um, Luke records the cleansing of the temple and the conflict there, but that makes no mention uh, regarding the fig tree. Now, what, uh, let me go back to Mark here. Uh, why did Jesus want a fig? Okay, well, he was hungry. Scripture tells us that right there. Um, he became hungry. On the next day when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And, and, and part of me wants to know, well, why? <laughs> why didn't he eat a bigger breakfast? Okay. 
why uh, if he's just if he just left uh you know what was what were Mary and Martha doing? Why wasn't Martha fixing breakfast? That's kind of her personality, right? I mean, I know Mary's not good for anything, but why would Martha not have, uh, I'm teasing, why would Martha not have fixed breakfast? Well, we don't, we're not told any of that, but he becomes hungry when he sees the tree, okay? And sometimes that happens. You see something and it, you go, oh, that would go real good right now, and you get hungry just looking at the thing, okay? At least I do. So he, uh, he sees this tree, becomes hungry, seeing at a distance the fig tree in leaf, in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Figs aren't in season at this time. Okay? In the, in the, and now I'm not, I'm the last person on earth that's going to start teaching you guys anything agriculturally related. But we can at least read the text for what it says here. Um, I've read everything imaginable on, on fig trees and how they actually don't leaf until they are prepared to produce figs. And so when you see the leaves, you know figs are, are close. They're approaching. And uh, but just not quite yet. So we've got leaves, but no figs. And so um, he throws a carnality temper tantrum. Is that what he does? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are smarter than a certain percentage of commentaries that are out there. Jesus is not having a snit. All right. He actually is observing things this is this is a powerful week for, for for our savior okay it has been since the previous saturday it has been um when he was in the home of mary and martha all these episodes as he was approaching as he was speaking to zacchaeus up in the tree this whole week every conversation is powerful for him because no one else has figured out what he's been telling him this is his last week he's headed to the cross and no one seems to understand that they're singing hosanna they're they're, they're rejoicing he's weeping over jerusalem we saw that last week and now he sees a barren fig tree. He sees a barren fig tree. And what do you think that means? What do you think it meant to him? And so that's what I'm going to give you here in the points. First of all, Jesus desired its fruit. But it was bearing no fruit. You say, was that the tree's fault? <laughs> well, I would tell you here today that being out of season is no excuse when we are commanded to be ready in season and out of season. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Being ready in season and out of season is a command. It is a command. And Paul gave it to Timothy. We assume it applies primarily to pastors, but I say it applies to every believer priest. Every believer priest. We are in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. So being out of season is no excuse when we are commanded to be ready in season and out of season. The Lord wants a fig. If he wants it, then he's going to make it happen, is he not? <laughs> if he expresses his will, if he makes his will known and assigns it to us, then it's going to be his faithfulness that's going to make it happen. It has to be. And if it doesn't happen, then there's a reason for it. We have to recognize that as well. We're going to be very careful with this passage. In fact, if it takes us the whole hour to teach um, the, the, the principles of prayer that are related here, it's going to be very worth it. If we take two weeks, three weeks to teach the principles of prayer here, it's very worth it because I hate what some Christians do with this passage and they turn it into a name it and claim it prosperity theology approach. That if you just pray hard enough, if you just believe, if you believe, any, you can do anything if you believe. But what if you believe a lie? What if you believe something that's not true? What if you believe something based on your selfishness that has nothing to do with what the plan of God has going on? 
But we start in the first observation here related to this tree is that he desired its fruit. He desired its fruit and there was no fruit. And that's a problem. It's a problem today. It's a problem in our application. And if we think we can say, oh, well, it's out of season, it's not our fault, then uh, we're reminded of 2 Timothy 4.2. Secondly, point B, in the fruitless fig tree, Jesus saw the nation of Israel. The, the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. The promises related to the vine and the fig tree are millennial promises related to their future prosperity and their glory. Even today, the modern state of Israel uses a fig tree as part of its symbolism on, on their coinage and on their uh, official uh, uh, seals and, and uh, diagrams and so forth. But in the fruitless fig tree, Jesus saw the nation of Israel. Each day when he comes and he sees these things that he sees, when he sees the temple and he sees the uh, profiteering that's taking place, the merchandising that's taking place, he sees that what's supposed to be his father's house, what's supposed to be a house of prayer, has been turned into a robber's den. It's been turned into a place of plunder. And... Um, Everything that he sees in the process of this week leading up to the cross is having an impact on him. And uh, it's, it's, uh, we're going we're gonna to build on this. And I'm really going to try to explain it as, as best as I can day by day by day as we reach Thursday, as we reach the dinner Thursday night, as he tells his betrayer to go out and do uh, what he has to do. Uh, we're going to see that each thing that he observes each step of the way is, is, is having an impact in his thinking. And all of it is preparing him for that critical volitional test when he's in the garden waiting to be arrested is he going to submit to the father's will and uh, so this is part of that this is part of the build-up and he sees a fruitless fig tree and he sees the nation of israel he sees a nation that's not going to accept their christ they've already rejected their christ cursing the tree sub point one cursing the tree allowed its message to match the pronouncement of destruction already decreed against Jerusalem. He's going to let the tree agree with the verbal message he's already given. In other words, it's not just going to be a fruitless tree. It's going to be a dead tree. Okay? He's going to curse it. It's going to wither. It's going to die. And that's the, that's the destiny now that Jerusalem faces. Because they are presently fruitless. They're going to crucify their Christ and, and taunt the Lord by saying his blood be on our head and upon our children. And they're not going to be, as a nation, they're not going to be simply a fruitless tree. They're going to be withered, dead, cursed. Okay. And yet, not uprooted. Not uprooted. It's left in the ground where it is and that dead, withered tree is going to be resurrected in the in the glories yet to come. And so if we turn over to Luke, we can see some of these. Luke 13, verse 35. Luke 13 and verse 35. <coughs> you know, it's interesting. There's... Um, Another verse I was going to add to this as well. I can't recall at the moment. But in Luke 13, um, the Pharisees were warning him about Herod, and he's got he's going to relay a message to Herod through these Pharisees and so forth. And uh, 
he appreciates their warning, but he's not afraid to die. In fact, he knows that his death is scheduled and he knows it's this coming Passover. And he says, uh, and he even mentions the third day, um, today and tomorrow on the third day I reach my goal. So he, he knows what's coming up. But he says in verse 34 of Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How's that for a reputation? You know, is that is that the uh, is that the phrase that the Chamber of Commerce wants printed on their on their tourist literature? Uh, <laughs> Come see Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Now, Jerusalem's going to have a new name. Jerusalem's going to be called Beulah. There's going to be blessings. There's going to have um, tremendous glories awaiting them in the in the millennium. And it's just, it's sad to the Lord, certainly, and to anyone with a divine viewpoint, that they're going to go through their destruction and dispersion in the, the time uh, of, the, of the Gentile dominion there. So how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. You would not. We've got the, the verb for will or desire, the fellow for the will of God. And God has a will, and men have a will. And when men are exercising their will in defiance of God's will, well, he permits it on a limited basis. He permits it for certain durations. He'll eventually overrule and judge it for the disobedience that it is. But he uh, designed angels and men with volition, and he allows us the free exercise. And it's just uh, it's a sad circumstance there, isn't it? Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. So this was his message. This is the pronouncement. They have rejected their Christ. And uh, when he sees this tree, he's going to curse this tree so that the tree will, will communicate the same message that, uh, that he had communicated in, uh, in his verbal message. You will not see me until the time comes when you say, when you as a nation, the entirety of the Jewish people says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We talked about that last week. It's going to take tribulation to humble Israel to, uh, to proclaim that, um, that confession at second advent when Christ returns. All right, over to Luke 19.44 then. As he was approaching Jerusalem, we saw this last week, he saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And that was a message he gave on Palm Monday. All right. So the very next day he sees this fig tree and uh, curses this tree to allow the tree's message to allow the tree's message to be in agreement with his message to his disciples. Point two, the millennial blessings of vine and fig tree fruitfulness will have to wait for the second advent fulfillment. The millennial blessings of vine and fig tree fruitfulness We've seen it twice in the Minor Prophets. It's also spoken of, I think, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, some of the major prophets. But we've done the, the Minor Prophets recently, so I listed Micah 4.4 4 and Zechariah 3.10 as your scripture references. Millennial blessings of vine and fig tree fruitfulness. 
Yeah, they're coming. But there's going to be a whole lot of wrath before we get there. Okay? And uh, shouldn't have had to be that way, but it is. And so that's what it's going to take. And we need to have that perspective. Far too many believers are trying to live millennial Christianity today, and we're not there yet. We're in the church age. We're in the age of conflict, the intensified stage of the angelic conflict. You're trying to live millennial Christianity. You're living in a fantasy world. It doesn't exist. It's not here yet. All right. Micah 4, 4 and Zechariah 3, 10. These are uh, we were in Zechariah just a couple weeks ago. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. In fact, Gentiles are going to be clinging to Jews. Say, you have the word of the Lord. Teach us. Micah chapter 4 and verse 4. See, this is where uh, we're told in verse 3. Well, I can even back up a little bit. The um, Micah 4 will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. See, a mountain is symbolic for sovereignty, for a national sovereignty, for a kingdom. And Jerusalem will be the capital of planet Earth. Every Gentile nation will be subject to the Jewish nation. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways. We're not going to have a United Nations building in New York City. The nations aren't going to gather together for their disarmament conferences and their peace conferences and their Bash America conferences and their uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Israel conferences. They're going to go to Jerusalem. And they're going to worship, at least at the beginning of the millennial reign when they're all saved. And we may walk in his paths. From Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. If, uh, you know, two countries are having a currency dispute, they don't have to go to war about it. They don't have to uh, appeal to some World Trade Organization for mediation or blah, blah, blah. Sovereignty of Jesus Christ will determine who's right and who's wrong and who needs to adjust. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares or spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they train for war. Not only is this the immediate military disarmament, but it even dismantles the infrastructure behind it. The industry that supports it. Even the, the, uh, the knowledge base uh, schools of, of combat and schools of tactics and strategy, uh, military academies, all of that are going to be done away with. You know, you talk about lost art or lost knowledge, say. Last night my daughter was over at her grandmother's learning how to crochet. <coughs> and I was encouraging her in that. Excuse me. I was encouraging her in that because, uh, you know, what is, what's going to happen if some of these skills disappear? If the older generation doesn't pass on the knowledge that they've obtained, see? And I wonder anymore, does the, uh, you know, my generation, my kids' generation, those that are younger, do they even care anymore about 
baking or canning or sewing or crocheting or any of those skills? Or are they just kind of, is that all just kind of lost? And, and uh, so I was discussing that with my 10-year-old about how knowledge can actually disappear if it's not passed on, if, it's, if it disappears from living memory kind of a thing. Well, that's what's going to happen with war. War will disappear from living memory because it will not be permitted. Not even the training for war. Not even the training for war. <coughs> and then what goes with that? Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. <clears throat> what a blessing. What a delight that's going to be. And, uh, you know, we got, um, we're accustomed to certain venues and settings like <clears throat> church buildings and pulpits and auditorium seating and whatnot. But just imagine every house with their, and you go out back and you've got your vine, you've got your fig tree, and let's sit under here, let's fellowship in the things of the Lord. Let's discuss the scriptures. You can pick a fig while you're at it. But well, uh, the point isn't having figs to eat. The point is, is that you are sitting under a visible reminder of how awesome our God is. Okay, Jonah sat under a visible reminder of how awesome our God is, and it bugged him. <laughs> he hated it. I mean, he liked it when it was providing shade, but then when it died, then he, you know, had his own little snit. But what I'm trying to highlight for you is that there is this is not Jesus is not Jonah. Okay. And Jonah's experience under that tree is nothing like what Jesus experienced here with this fig tree. He's cursing this fig tree, not out of carnality. It's going to be instructive. His disciples are going to learn. They aren't seeming to learn any other way. <laughs> we'll see. All right. The illustration of the withered tree is not an occasion for Jesus to teach regarding first and second advent. We just talked about what the symbolism represents. And yet, when the disciples asked him his que their questions and he answered them, well, I haven't read his responses yet, we'll read through here, but in his response, he gives them nothing related to First and Second Advent. Instead, he teaches them more things re related to prayer. So the illustration of the withered fig tree is not an occasion for Jesus to teach regarding First Advent and Second Advent. The withered tree allows Jesus to reinforce previous teachings related to prayer. Previous teachings related to prayer. See. <laughs> and I find that interesting. Because there's so much symbolism in this tree. And I wonder if it's um, as much for the unbelievers to look at that tree in the days and weeks and months ahead, and years ahead, however long that tree sits there in its withered condition. Um, because when they ask him about it, let me get back to Mark here. When they ask him about it, he doesn't talk about the tree. He talks about prayer. And he says, if you want to, you can throw this tree into the sea. And you can pick up a mountain and throw it into the sea. And you can, he talks about prayer. All right? But we've got to be cautious because I think we read, like I say, I think the prosperity people read into that what they want to get out of it. But I think other people misread this too. To say, well, if you just believe enough, you get whatever you want. You don't. Jesus never does get a fig. He never does eat a fig anywhere in this chapter. And so if the, if the passage said what we think it says, then Jesus would simply ask, give me some figs. He doesn't get that. Instead, he curses the tree and never does eat any figs. 
But he's teaching these disciples about prayer that they've got to be lined up with the will of God. And so we'll highlight that. Now, Mark 11, this is hardly the first time this has come up. As we look at it here, Mark 11, the... Um, so he curses the tree in verse 14. Let's skip down past the cleansing of the temple. And then uh, the next day, this will be Wednesday morning, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Why is he telling believers to believe? Okay, to have faith. Primary uh, imperatives for believing um, that, that we make application are, are related to our Christian walk, not related to getting saved. We're already saved. But what happens when a believer stops walking by faith? What happens when a believer stops exercising faith? Does faith end with salvation? No. Faith continues. We walk by faith. We're saved by faith. We've got to keep walking by faith, and hopefully we'll die by faith as we have victory in our final work assignment here on planet Earth. So have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions okay i don't believe verse 26 belongs there because it's borrowed from the the matthew text and inserted in but we can let that go but does this sound familiar yes it's familiar this isn't the first time he's taught them this okay he taught them this over in matthew 17 he taught them this in luke 17 both previous to uh our current episode matthew 17 20 This is right after the transfiguration and he casts out a demon and, and uh, the disciples can't figure out why they couldn't cast out the demon. Why, why weren't they strong enough? And he says, because of the littleness of your faith. You've got to train your faith. You've got, your faith needs to grow and you need to keep using it. For I say it truly, I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. All right, so he'd already taught them. Principles related to faith, related to prayer, relating to engaging in prayer as an exercise of the will of God. Luke 17, 6. Again, it's prior to our current episode of study. Luke 17, 6. And uh, this is when they were trying to learn some things about forgiveness. And he taught them a message on forgiveness and they couldn't handle it. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, Repent, forgive him. And so the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. <laughs> Say, Increase our faith. We can't handle that. Forgive my brother seven times in the same day. I don't have faith for that. Increase our faith. And so the Lord, on that occasion then, the Lord said, If you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted, be planted in the sea, and it would, it would obey you. Okay, so faith as it relates to prayer. He's already taught it twice. Now he's teaching it again. Now he's te teaching it again. It's important that they gather this uh, before 
he's taken from them. They're going to have to live this. They're going to have to apply this after his, uh, after his death. Now, let's clear some things up. Because what is this passage not saying? Is this passage saying that you can just believe anything you want to believe and it's going to happen? Okay. It's the wrong understanding of belief. Okay. Believing does not make unreality reality. That's not believing. That's wishing. That's, that's a vain imagination. I can daydream all kinds of stuff. I can, I can make believe anything. Right? I've got a pretty vivid imagination. But no matter how strongly I, I desire something to happen, I can't cause it to come into existence by my own will. And that's not what believing is. So, the struggle in prayer is faith believing. Faith is a noun, believing is a verb. It's the same concept, same term. Okay? Pistis is faith, pistuo is believing. They look different in our English, faith and believing, but they're the same word. One's a noun, one's a verb. It's the same word. The struggle in prayer is faith believing contrasted with unbelief. And the uh, unbelief is reflected in the doubting that takes place in your mind. The struggle in prayer is faith believing contrasted with the unbelief. The unbelief that is manifested through doubting in your own mind. And that's what we see in Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22, Mark 11, 23, and James 1, 6. Faith believing contrasted with unbelief. Let's understand unbelief is not just simply the absence of belief. It is actually an active disbelief. Okay? That's an important principle as well. What is it that you're trusting? Are you trusting in God's promises or are you trusting in something else that's unbelief? Let's see. We just read Mark 11:23. Notice the reference there to doubting. It's not acceptable. Doubting is not an element of faith. Um, again, it's an issue of believing. Truly I say to you, this is Mark eleven twenty three. 23, um, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart. Doubting is incompatible with faith does not doubt in his heart, but believes. Doesn't imagine, doesn't pretend, doesn't wish, doesn't want, but believes. And we'll discuss that. Believes that what he says is going to happen. It will be granted him. Now, why would you believe it's going to happen? Because you want it to? Or because he said it's going to happen? Because his faithfulness has promised it will happen. That's the difference. Over to Matthew 21. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, there it is again, faith is contrasted with unbelief or doubting. You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast the sea, it will happen. Withering a fig tree, is that any big deal? How about throwing a mountain into the sea? Don't you think that's more impressive? And just on a, on a scale, you understand what he's using here. He's using the language of extreme to make the point. It will happen. All things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Again, believing. Not imagining. 
Not pretending, not wishing, believing. Understand that for what, what it means. James 1.6. I like James because it presents how insulting it is if we ask for something in prayer and we're doubting that he's able to do it or that he wants to do it or that he can do it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously without reproach and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Doubting. Doubting. Doubting is never good. Ever. Okay? You may have a season of it. You may have a moment of it whereby you're not yet under a conviction. And so you, what do you do? You freely confess your doubts. You give those doubts to the Father. You ask Him to remove those doubts. You ask Him to make His will clear. He's not a God that hides what He's doing or who He is or what He would have for you to do. Um, but the idea that you're going to make a decision based on doubt, Scripture doesn't let you do that. Say, well, I'm not sure. Is this right? Is this wrong? Well, I'm just going to do it anyway. And God will work it all out. Wrong. That's not the Christian way of life. That's not divine guidance. If you're doubting it's sin, you have to proceed on a faith basis. Whatever is not a faith is sin. If I can't go to the Father in prayer in the integrity of my heart and say, Father, I'm under conviction. I'm my faith, my faith belief right now, Father, is that this is what you would have for me to do. And I know that. That's my faith conviction. This is what I'm going to do because I'm under a faith conviction. Okay? Now, I could be incorrect. I, I, I might be, you know, in, in finite understanding. I might be, I might be dead wrong. Okay, but at least in the integrity of my heart, my honesty before the Lord, I am acting in accordance with my understanding and my present faith conviction. And he will have to correct my, my misperceptions. He'll have to correct my mistakes and so forth. But that's, that's a world of difference from just acting in, in doubt and saying, well, I don't really know. I'm not sure. If you're not sure, then don't do it. If you can't do it in a faith conviction, don't do it. It's unstable. He who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. We've got too many unstable believers. We don't want Christ didn't give us the word of God for instability. He gave us the word for stability. We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why would God answer your prayers? He's not gonna God's not gonna glorify instability. Being a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, God glorifies the stability. When a mature believer in faith has a conviction and goes to his father, that glorifies the father. Those prayers get answered. So the struggle in prayer is faith believing contrasted with unbelief or doubting. If this is a struggle for you, then you've got to ask the father to increase your faith. You've got to ask for it. You need more wisdom. Ask for it. He gives to all generously without reproach. If you're not at a phase right now where you're ready to make that decision because the, the doubt's still there, confess that. Ask him to remove it. Get some help with that doubting. It may be that uh, uh, God has deliberately withheld the confirmation because it could be that the test isn't even yours. It could be that it's a test of your brother to, to teach them how to come alongside. It could be it's a test for your husband to come alongside or a test for your uh, someone. It's not your test even. God's trying to get them to learn how to come alongside, how to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please themselves. 
And you get to be the venue for their testing. Hmm. Point two. Please understand, faith is placed in an object. Faith is never without an object. If there's no object, it's not faith. Faith is placed in an object. It's a transitive verb. It's a, it's a concept that demands an object. You can't just simply believe in nothing. You have to believe in something. Okay? Faith is placed in an object. It is a response to a message. And see, this is why the idea that, well, I can just do miracles, okay? I can, um, I can uh, you know, pull gold out of my pocket or something. Uh, if I just believe hard enough, then whatever I ask believing, you know, I'm, I'm going to start pulling $100 bills out of my pocket or something. Well, I guess I don't have enough faith. Nope. That's not how it works. Because that's not faith. That's a vain, empty imagination. And we're at war with those. Faith is in an object. Did God give me a promise to fill my pockets with $100 bills? I, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. Uh, I, I'm under no such promise. So how can I believe that that's going to happen? See what I'm saying? I may want it to happen. I may, in my imagination, desire it to happen. But placing my trust in my vain imaginations is not what God's called me to do. Faith is placed in an object. It is a response to a message. Romans 10.14 It is the action of trusting the one who is faithful. Hebrews 10.23 That's why faith in Christ is eternally powerful. That's why faith in Muhammad is eternally worthless. It has nothing to do with how fervently the believers in each religion, how devoutly and fervently they cling to their faith. If the belief is wrong, then the belief is wrong. Romans 10.14 And not to single out Muhammad, same thing with Confucius, same thing with Buddha, same thing with Krishna, same thing with any false god you want to mention? Romans 10.14 How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? It's just not going to happen. But then the second question. How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? There has to be a message that is proclaimed. There has to be a promise given. There has to be something communicated. An objective standard or a message or a basis that can be trusted. How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? Nobody can place their faith in Christ if the information is not communicated verbally, in a written form, in some kind of fashion. They're not going to get it in natural revelation. They're not going to stare at a, you know, a mulberry bush and come to faith in Christ. They can look at creation and see God's essence, His power, and the Creator, but they can't see that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. That has to be communicated in written form, in verbal form, somehow. It's the only way that faith can be placed in that object. They have to know about it. Can't just believe without the knowledge. 
And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? So it's just logic. All right. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's not just simply, a, well, I'm passionate about what I think might happen. No, your imagination can't cause reality. God causes the reality. and We have to trust it. It is the action of trusting the one who is faithful. Hebrews 10.23 That's why trust is a wonderful synonym for belief. Hebrews 10.23 And we do better in our understanding of pistuo when we relate it to the trust component than we do if we intellectualize pistuo over, overboard if we intellectualize pistuo to where believing is simply um, acknowledging the facts of something okay and i think too many people confuse knowledge with belief because i I've, i can tell you right now you can know that jesus died on the cross for your sins and not be saved you can know the factual reality of what he did on the cross and why he did it you could have you can acknowledge the 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 factual nature of that and not trust in that for your eternal life just chew on that for a little bit this is some of the stuff we teach in our soteriology on on uh on the details of what pistuo and pistis actually is but hebrews 10:23 let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What gives value to faith? The faithfulness of the one making the promise. If a liar promises you something and you believe it, is there any value to what you believe? Well, only so far as that liar chooses to make good on what he promised. (laughs) And maybe he will, maybe he won't. But the strength that you believe it is irrelevant. Maybe you believe it strongly. Maybe you barely believe it because you kind of know what a liar he is. It doesn't matter how strongly you believe it, how weakly you believe it. If he's eternally, absolutely faithful, it's going to happen. And I find it interesting, too. Even if our faith is weak, he still is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. How many Arminians are out there terrified they're going to lose their salvation? Are they going to lose their salvation? Uh Uh-uh. Because he's faithful. It's based on his faithfulness, not how strongly they hold their faith. All right. So faith is placed in an object. That's why it says, if you believe that this mountain is going to get thrown into the sea. Okay? Now he's using an extreme metaphor to make the point that there's nothing beyond the realm. Is it kind of unthinkable that you're going to start tossing mountains around? Okay? Part of the normal human experience? Of course, it's unthinkable. All right? But that's making the point that there's nothing beyond our imagination that he's not capable of doing. We need to recognize that as far as what his capabilities are in answering our prayers. Then we need to identify with, well, what are his promises that I can start claiming in my prayers and start believing in my in my prayers. So faith is placed in an object. I, 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 I want to stress that as well. So as we discuss the idea that, well... Um, your loved one is, is terminal. And the doctors are giving a certain amount of time. Well, Betty Thiem died. Did you hear that? Did you see the email? 
Pastor Theme's wife's now with him in, in glory. But, you know, you have a loved one who's, who's, who's on the verge of departing. And, and you think, or Pentecostals will try to say, well, you just have strong enough faith and we can heal them. Says who? You got a verse somewhere that says that dear Aunt Sadie has promised uh, another eight weeks or whatever? No. God made no such promises to any one of us. You know, it's not a matter of, that's not believing, that's wishing. That is simply declaring your will and then hoping strongly that your will is done. Scripture never gives us that prerogative to say our will be done. It always tells us your will be done. That's faith. It's always placed in an object. So, um, somebody uh, and. Ooh, I won't, I won't give that away. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> point three. A faith prayer is not uttered on one's own initiative. John 5.30, John 8.28, John 14.10. Christ set the pattern. He spoke nothing of His own initiative. Why should we? A faith prayer is not uttered on one's own initiative. Believing is not willing something into existence. You know what? I'm going to divide those out. I'm going to make those points three and point four. So next week you'll have two points there. I'm going to split those into two. A faith prayer is not uttered on one's own initiative. John 5.30, John 8.28, John 14.10. You know, a lot of times we think that we pray for things on our own initiative. But... The more and more I start to ponder this and search the scriptures and wonder about it, do we truly pray on our own initiative? Or what is it that put them on my mind to begin with? And the more I get more and more sensitive to that, and the more I get more and more, what's the old Baptist term is yielded. Okay, once I get more and more um, yielded, in the sense of understanding what it is that the Lord has placed on my heart, who it is that I should be praying for, who it is that, um, well, you'll see what I'm talking about here. John 5:30, John 8:28, and John 14:10. Christ is our example, and so I think the more that we speak on our own initiative, the more trouble we get into, and the more we speak as He leads us, the better we'll be with it. John 5.30. And hopefully we're going to be so intimate with the Lord that they're going to be that He fills our thinking anyway on a daily basis. That we're not, uh, we're not um, schizophrenic in what our thoughts are compared to what His thoughts are. We're in His Word so consistently, so daily, that our thoughts are, are His thoughts anyway as His Word uh, is communicated through us. But John 5.30 um, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. That's the pattern. We're to be imitators of that. And take that and make that a prayer application. I can pray nothing on my own initiative as I'm led by the Holy Spirit I'm going to have discernment in my prayers. And my judgment is just. My discernment is going to be in tune with His will. 
because I'm not seeking my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so I'm going to stop crafting my prayers after what I want. I'm going to stop. Uh, God has assigned, I'd like to my brother-in-law, God assigned him colon cancer. And he's in heaven now, but uh, he was assigned colon cancer. How am I going to craft my prayers? I'm going to say, Father, take away this colon cancer. Well, didn't God the Father just give the colon cancer? Either he either directed it or he permitted it. He assigned this as a test, right? Or did it just show up out of God's control? God had no clue the colon cancer was showing up. God's up there in heaven and said, oh my goodness, where'd that come from? No. He knew from the foundation of the world the very day that it was going to be started and then the very day it was going to be humanly discovered. And by the time the humans discovered it, it was already stage four, it was already terminal, it was already what it was. Okay? God knew all of that. So was it the will of God for Byron to have colon cancer? Was it the will of God for colon cancer to take his physical life? Yes, it was, because that's what happened. So why do I craft my prayers in, Father, take away this colon cancer? Heal him. I disagree with you, Father. Your will says colon cancer. My will says, uh, I don't like that. Wait a minute. This was a test. This was a sign. What are the lessons that are going to be learned in this test? How does Christ get glorified in this test? How do believers come alongside other believers? How does my sister get strengthened before she becomes a widow, as she becomes a widow, and after she is a widow? How do all these things glorify Jesus Christ? Then I can start actually crafting my prayers in faith. I can actually start asking things believing. I can actually start asking for things that are compatible with what has been promised. Uh, God never promised he was going to heal Byron. But he did promise that he would comfort my sister in times of suffering. So I can start asking for that, believing, can I not? All right. So I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just. Over to chapter 8 and verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. See, I want to... I want to do everything on a daily basis according to what he has for me to do. I don't want to uh, teach a Bible class that he has not provided for me to teach. I don't want to speak a message. I don't want to offer a prayer. I don't want to do anything apart from what he has directed, what he is leading. John trying to tell them that he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house and that when he comes again he will receive them to himself i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me and philip says lord show us the father it's enough for us and jesus said have i been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me he who has seen me has seen the father how can you say show us the father Verse 10 then, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Does his works. And so, if we're going to be an imitator of Christ in the application of this, as it pertains to our prayers, then I would submit that a faith prayer is not uttered on one's own initiative. That faith is going to be a response. 
Faith is not initiated. Faith is a response. What's initiated then? Well, a promise. Or a leading, see, a command. As the Father puts it on your heart and He provokes you, um, you, whatever, you see something on the news and you're, you're, you're provoked. You know, I, I was provoked repeatedly at this Rifka Berry thing. I kept reading about this girl and how she converted from Islam and, and became a Christian. And then, oh man, all the, the evil trying to get her back and they were trying to get her off to Sri Lanka and get her, you know, where she could be appropriately murdered and whatever. And I don't know her from Adam. But she's my sister in Christ. Everything I read about it, everything, every time I read, I, I was just provoked. Man, that girl needs prayer. And so, based on that, is faith then not a response to a conviction, to a leading, to a um, the uh, leading of the Holy Spirit when it's laid on your heart? Yes, it's a response. It's not on our own initiative. So faith prayer is not uttered in one's own initiative. Just chew on that for a bit. I would suspect the more things you do on your own initiative that aren't coming as a response to anything God's doing, chances are it's going to be human. It's going to be selfish. All right, then the second part of this point, what will become the new point four next week. Believing is not willing something into existence. None of us has the sovereignty to say, let there be cheeseburger. Okay? We're approaching lunchtime. I'm starting to get hungry. Yeah. Wouldn't that be, you know, like that goofy old, you know, just snap your fingers and there it is. Right? That's not the Christian way of life. That's not prayer. Believing is not willing something into existence. God can do that. We can't. Who are we? Matthew 26, verses 39 and 42. It's not my will, but thine be done. Do I want my will to be realized on... No, I want His will to be done. Likewise, Mark 14, 36 is the parallel to that. Luke 22, 42 is the parallel to that. All three synoptics describing the prayer life of Jesus Christ there in the garden. If there's anyone that was entitled to express His will, it's God the Son, right? But He submitted His will to the will of the Father. And if God the Son's not going to assert His own will, who am I to assert my own will? I have to be prayer. My prayer has to be lined up with the will of God the Father. It's not a faith prayer. Because faith is a response. Faith is a responder. Okay? Well, I think probably um, women are, in, are built, designed uh, to be more attuned to some of these things related to prayer. Men are weak when it comes to prayer. We've got to pound it into our skulls. But there is a facet of the feminine realm of creation that is already attuned to be a responder in terms of the, the male role in initiation and the woman's role in response and, and the, 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 the partnership that happens there between a man and a woman and, and how we're crafted. Well, faith prayer is a response. It's a response to a promise. It's a response to a conviction. It's a response to a leading. It's a response to uh, uh, the, the conviction that he lays on your heart based on scriptural teaching. Finally, James 4, verses 13 through 15. We'll have to close with this because it's 10.59 and 32 seconds. So um, we'll, we'll pick this back up again next week. But let me just give you the passage that often in James 4 is not necessarily usually thought of as a prayer venue, but it is. 
Okay. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business there and make a profit. You say, now, is that really a prayer passage? You could think of it that way. This is somebody who is creating ideas in his mind or thinking about this or thinking about that. He's making plans. So you could, you could certainly take these verses and, uh, and uh, study them in a, a realm of prayer. Because the principle is true. In verse 14, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. How can you, in your imagination, will something into existence when you're a creature of time, bound by time, subject to this universe you, you live in? You don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Okay? I think you can take this passage and put it into a prayer venue and make the application such as we're doing here on the point. Believing is not willing something into existence. You're not going to throw a mountain into the sea unless you can show me a verse that says, uh, you know, the church aid believer is going to throw this mountain into, a, into the sea. All right, we'll do more on this next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Teach us these things related to prayer. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name, amen.